1: Hello, and welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike.
0: If you're joining us for the first time, Trail Mix is the short format episodes of our show. While our long format episodes explore one hiking trail and one national park, one park at a time, Trail Mix allows us to dive deeper into things we didn't get to cover in our long format episodes, including interviews, history, science, and environmental justice. That's right. And this Trail Mix is all
1: about... Extremophiles. I feel like there needs to be an echo there. (laughs) Extremophiles.
0: And while it may sound like we're chatting about people with the need for a big adrenaline rush, in actuality, extremophiles aren't very big at all. But despite their small size, they may reveal a host of information about the limits of life on our changing planet and the survival of life on other worlds.
1: So let's start with the big question. Or the small question, Mm -hmm. what exactly is an extremophile. Extremophiles are typically single-celled microorganisms, think very very small, that thrive in extreme conditions. Due to their genetic makeup, extremophiles can be found in places where life should not exist, yet there they are. Extremophiles belong in each of the three domains of life. Bacteria, archaea, and eukarya.
0: From salinity to pressure to temperature to radiation, extremophiles are the surprise, surprise meme of the natural world. And interestingly enough, the discovery of extremophiles in 1969 by microbiologist Thomas Brock has a National Park link. But more
1: on that a little later. So as we dive a little deeper, let's unpack what kind of extremophiles exist and what parameters they thrive under. From acidophile to thermophile, the suffix phile means lover of. So let's start with the first two listed. An acidophile loves acidic conditions or low pH levels. Its counterpart on the opposite end of the spectrum would be an alkalophile loving high pH levels. And I know that I would consider myself an alkalophile because... (laughs) I often will get alkaline bottled water. Mm-hmm. Right. Thermophile, a high-temperature-loving microorganism that thrives best at temperatures 40 degrees Celsius or higher, and that's 104 degrees Fahrenheit, has the counterparts of hyperthermophile, an even higher-temperature-loving microorganism that thrives best at temperatures of 80 degrees Celsius or higher, and that's 176 degrees Fahrenheit. And... Cycrophile, an organism that thrives on temperatures 15 degrees Celsius or lower. That's 59 degrees Fahrenheit. An anaerobe can grow without the presence of
0: oxygen. Endoliths live in rock between the pores of minerals. Oligotrophs live in areas that are nutrient-limited. And toxic can withstand high levels of
1: damaging elements or radiation. Halophiles thrive in high salt content. Barophiles thrive in high hydrostatic pressure and Xerophiles can grow where there is very low water activity. And on top of all of this,
0: many extremophiles can be categorized as poly-extremophiles, meaning that they are adapted to live in environments where there may be more than just one extreme condition. For example, hot springs may be acidic or alkaline and also have extremely high temperature.
1: So clearly, poly-extremophiles are the overachievers of the bunch. Okay, so we just said a lot of $17 words yeah. <laughs> when we were talking about the types of extremophiles, mm-hmm. but this is how they are categorized. Yeah. This is just sort of how science has broken them down right. into the different right. parts. I
0: think they actually are also X-Men or Pokemon, <laughs> they, to, to believe I mean, it or not. I mean, they sound like I that. I mean, I am definitely a halophile because I love high salt content. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like, well, yeah. yeah, also loving acid or high temperatures. Well, I feel like you also like the low temperatures. I do. Which is what, the anaerobes? No, they no. live without oxygen. Yeah. That's the psych, psychrophiles. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you are yeah. definitely a psychrophile. <laughs> if there ever was a psychrophile. <laughs> right. mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So I'm a little bit fascinated by speaking of anaerobes. They can live without oxygen. Yeah. Or which low is, oxygen. Or low oxygen. Yeah. Which is wild because it's like, I remember like a science professor explaining to me once I, I was curious about sort of the, inner workings of a specific animal Mm -hmm. and they were like yes just note that like as a human you are hardwired to try and understand that animal in relation to yourself and in order to understand like an, an animal's digestive system or skeletal system you have to divorce the idea of trying to compare it to the mm, human, um, skeletal system or the human digestive system—things sure. just work differently. Yeah. So yeah, that's the part of me that's like, oh wow, they can live without oxygen. Oxygen or, is wild, but yeah. that's only because I'm comparing yeah. it to my own experience. Or zero as a files human. that need low water. You know, right? And we are, you know, seventy percent water. Right. We can't. We can't without water. Seven days. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Uh huh. So what gives? extremophiles their unique edge, or dare I say, superpowers? Well, a lot of this boils down to genetics. For example, thermophiles, the first extremophiles to be discovered and studied, have a particular enzyme, a DNA polymerase, that helps to heat stabilize and keep them thriving. A DNA polymerase, if you weren't aware, because we weren't, is is a specific type of enzyme found in all living things. Primarily, these enzymes are responsible for DNA repair and maintenance, and are important in passing
1: genetic information from one generation to the next. Oh. Yeah. Science. Each type of extremophile has adapted a portion of its DNA or cellular makeup to allow it to thrive in its distinctive and inhospitable to humans and most other living beings environments. We <laughs> And if you're th- and if you're thinking,
0: wow, I bet the study of these simple yet complex organisms could lead to advancements in science and industry. Well, you're right. The special skill set of extremophiles already has implications in industry, from farming to cleaning to fuel to pharmaceuticals. The wheels of science
1: and industry turn ever onward. Along with terrestrial implications for extremophiles, there is plenty of scientific thought about extremophiles and the universe at large. But before we get there, let's connect the dots of extremophiles to the national parks. As a great deal of study and discovery regarding these microorganisms is due to the first National Park, Yellowstone. In 1889, geologist Walter
0: Harvey Reed wrote, quote, there is good reason to believe that the existence of algae of other colors, particularly the pink, yellow, and red forms so common in the Yellowstone waters have been overlooked or mistaken for deposits of purely mineral matter. End quote. While this thought doesn't exactly lead to extremophiles, it definitely got at least one scientist to ponder what else was happening in the springs of Yellowstone. It would be another 80 years before the ball really got rolling with extremophiles and their discovery. Enter Thomas
1: Brock, a professor of microbial biology. Upon a visit to Yellowstone in 1964, Brock, just as Walter Harvey Reed did, observed the shifting colors of the hot springs in Yellowstone and noticed that the shift in these colors was due in Part to a relationship to the shift of temperature. But as he looked closer, he came to realize that there were microbial biomass in the superheated waters. At the time, it was believed that life was possible to survive at temperatures
0: up to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. But as Brock and his undergraduate student, Hudson
1: Freeze, would soon discover, a whole new world was about to open up. Brock and Freeze, also Brock and Freeze, sounds like a crime fighting superhero duo, discovered a new bacteria yeah Thermus aquaticus, which would further open the doorway to the world of microbiology and begin the search for other types of extreme loving members of the domains of life, of archaea, bacteria, and eukarya.
0: Now, as a sidebar, prior to furthering the conversation on extremophiles, the work of Thomas Brock was impactful in so many ways. In our more recent world, Brock's discovery of Thermus aquaticus had a direct impact on DNA sequencing and the creation of PCR tests testing or polymerase chain reaction testing if you remember polymerase is an enzyme found in all living things and it's sort of comical how you think that the science you're taking advantage of today exempts you from scientific thought and advancement when in fact you're surviving because of the thought care curiosity and drive from a scientist who discovered it for you from a pile of microbial stuff I
1: do have to say that was well done that was well done thank you yes (laughs) Yes. Um great metaphor, great connection. <laughs> great yeah. um Meryl streep mm. um as well I learned from the best <laughs> Um Well Thank you. <laughs> take your take your flowers. I will take my flowers <laughs> on that. Um an excellent Miranda Priestley. Mm-hmm. Okay, but literally that's PCR. Literally, this was so fascinating to discover PCR in this testing research is connected to this
0: is ex- is connected to essentially extremophiles the discovery wow. of extremophiles which is wild like again science i feel like is um, you know. doing more for the world than religion ever did <laughs> did i say the quiet part loud <laughs> i'm just gonna say it again
1: <laughs> um and i feel mike's like hot takes here <laughs> mike's hot. Ta- yeah mm-hmm. um and the fact that we're we've been saying PCR testing. Oh, least. and I didn't know what. Oh happened. my God! Yeah. All of us yeah. have been saying that word for, or at least that Years. phrase for now, at least since twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So it is, it's wild to see those dots connect. And it's fascinating that, you know, the implications of one scientific progression have so many far-reaching, like, arms to them, so.
1: And this is why we say, everybody, you know, when you go to a national park and when you go into a natural space, we have to take care of that natural space. We have to be stewards of that natural space. Because had we decided to just bulldoze all of that stuff in Yellowstone, we may not have ever gotten to where we are with this. No. So, adapted speeches from the Devil Wears Prada aside, studies of extremophiles have also been studied in places like Hot Springs National Park and Carlsbad Caverns National Park. Thinking about Hot Springs National Park, it's fairly obvious the type of extremophiles that live here, the heat-loving kind, or thermophiles. In the park itself, there are three different types of thermophiles, including cyanobacteria, which is blue-green algae, thermophilic bacteria, and ostracods. There is a fourth nanobacteria, but these bacteria are so small it is argued that they may not even be living organisms. Some interesting facts about the
0: thermophiles within Hot Springs National Park include the fact that the blue-green algae found within the park, one type, Formidium trelicae, is so rare that it has only been recorded in five other places on Earth. The thermophilic bacteria eats chemicals like sulfur and hydrogen, and the ostracods are a bunch of crustaceans which are capable of living in the
1: waters of the park up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That's wild. Yeah. Also, I think for Halloween next year, I'm going to go as an Ostracon. <laughs> as we have spent a lot of time in caves this season, these spaces are excellent environments when it comes to the study of extremophiles, as their limiting conditions are ideal for finding life at the extremes. With no access to light from the outside world, temperatures that can swing from very hot to very cold, and water sources that may not be the most pH neutral... Caves are a host to a variety of rare and interesting life forms, including extremophiles. Cave studies in Carlsbad Caverns, Wind Cave, and even Mount St. Helens
0: ice caves are on the hunt to discover the extremophiles in these spaces and what allows them to survive and thrive so cut off from the outside world. These places, like the caves of Chihuahua, Mexico, where extremophiles were found dwelling deep inside crystals in a silver and zinc mine in 2017, allow the scientific world to dream about what sort of life already exists
1: on other planets. While we know that some extremophiles don't need oxygen to survive and thrive, there seems to be a general consensus that on the planets and bodies of our solar system where water exists, even if it is a frozen state like the moon, Mars, and Jupiter's moon Europa, the likelihood of extremophiles is even higher. And as we
0: look ever more towards the heavens as a way to deepen our thirst for exploration as a species or perhaps as a survival route, this thought process has led scientists to examine the effects of space or very low atmosphere on tardigrades, also known as the water bear. When an Israeli lunar lander crashed into the surface of the moon in 2019, it released tardigrades across
1: the surface. The unique thing about tardigrades is that they require a thin layer of moisture around them to remain active. But when environments don't allow for this, for example, the vacuum of space, tardigrades go dormant and are capable of surviving decades in this hibernating state. They are able to survive temperatures extremes, radiation, and pressure in enormous amounts, ascending them to the ranks of poly extremophiles. The study of how these extremophiles exist on the moon and what information can be gained from retrieving them will ultimately unlock more scientific inquiry and curiosity. So, yeah,
0: extremophiles just doing the heavy lifting here. Oh, yeah. What a gift to the world.
1: Seriously, microbiology Mm -hmm. for the win. Yeah, I know. Where would we be without it? We would, uh, dad, dad <laughs> that is where we would be yeah, yeah absolutely i remember i didn't get to take microbiology in high school and i was mm. always bummed mm-hmm. and i wanted to take it so you so could much. ascend to the rank of supervillain <laughs> it's true it's true yeah. exactly mm-hmm. i think this is like such a Nice reminder, especially for those of us, again, when we are in natural spaces, like they talk about specifically in desert parks, like don't walk off trail trail, because there are organisms that have been like working for hundreds of years to create an environment. Yeah. There is so much we stand to learn from those organisms. Yes, absolutely. So not destroying them is really, really important. Yes. And like when we go into caves, like staying in the places where we're supposed to be Mm -hmm. and not venturing off into other places unless we're, you know, like guided there. That's really important, yeah, too. Yeah. You know, there's so many reasons to be a good steward mm-hmm. in natural spaces, but in particular for um, the things that are there that can teach us and help us. Yeah. The implications
0: for extremophiles in the scientific world are boundless. While DNA sequencing and the study of microbial life forms has already had an impact on industry and medicine, learning more about extremophiles can also help us to unlock a better understanding of what life might look like on other planets or
1: maybe May help us to better understand how to adapt to our changing one. The sources for today's episode include the article Extremophiles and Extreme Environments by Pablo Henri Carampolato. The article Living at the Extremes Extremophiles
0: and the Limits of Life in a Planetary Context by Nancy Marino, Heidi S. Aronson, Diana P. Bojanova, Jamie Fail Busca, Michael L. Wong, Xu
1: Zhang, and Donato Giovanelli. The American Society for Microbial Biology article, How Extremophiles Push the Limits of Life, by Cardic Iyer.
0: The Space.com article, Extremophiles on Mars Could Survive for Hundreds of Millions of Years,
1: by Keith Cooper. The article, Tardigrades, Our Practically Indestructible Moon Overlords from the University of Florida. And the National Park Service. And let's end this trail mix with a game.
0: So this game is all this is called File It Under. So it's all about oh. lovers of things. File P H I L E. So I'm gonna describe I like something. This. I'm gonna give you the what the um, the term is. Great. Um, you're gonna have to, based off of the clue, explain what this person loves.
1: Oh, love it. Okay. Great. So file
0: it under for one hundred. An acrophile is someone who loves this and would probably have no trouble with hiking Angel's Landing, being an Olympic diver, or doing window washing at
1: the top of the Empire State Building. So it sounds like an acrophile loves heights. That's correct. Which is maybe also where we get the acro from an acrobat.
0: Probably, yes. You know, Latin. Latin root words. (laughs) (laughs) File it under for 200 A bromidrophile... Is someone who loves this and would be in heaven in a room of gassy people with no deodorant on that all also
1: suffered from halitosis. So it's called a bromidrophile. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it was like a like a like a bro who loves to show his midriff. <laughs> yeah, that's but it. um, um, it sounds like like they're really into like putrid body smells. That's
0: right. It's body odors. Body Correct. odors. Yeah. There all we go. Right, great. Fire it under for three hundred. A Hylophile is someone who loves this and would enjoy their time in the White Mountains, Green Mountains, or George Washington
1: and Jefferson of these. What are forests? That's correct. Oh, look, look at, at that. that. I was going to say, <laughs> what are places in New England? <laughs> <laughs>
0: there's some. There's got to be someone. That there oh, has I'm to sure be a there's a that. term for that. Mm-hmm.
1: It's like an Anglophile. (laughs) I feel like we had like, um, I'm not going to lie. I feel like this is like a sort of, I've always felt like file and phobia Mm -hmm. are like. We've done a phobia game before. We have, but in the English language, if Mm -hmm. we're talking about the English language, right? Like, for example, like we have this thing in the English language where if we take a verb and we're doing it right then in that moment, we just add an ing to it and it works, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. If you are, you know, like to bake, I'm baking, baking mm-hmm. right, exactly. But instead of doing something simple like that, like if I were afraid of baking, it, I couldn't just say bake a phobia or right. something like that, or bake will- which is lover of baking. Uh, it well, would now have to be some hyper specific other word it's rooted in Latin. Yeah. That is like, it's like a never-ending fun house of words, yeah. is what I like to call it. Like, and it's hard, it's very easy to like, just fall into the, you know, the rabbit hole of mm-hmm. what these words are. Yeah.
0: File it under for 400 A pagona is someone who loves this and would enjoy staring at photos of Abe Lincoln, ZZ Top, Walt Whitman, and Santa Claus.
1: What is the lover of
0: beards? That's correct. Mm-hmm. And for 500 an esoptrophile loves this. So, a trip to a fun house, a dressing room, or a famous hallway in the Palace of Versailles would be amazing for them.
1: Okay, so it's funny that I did just mention fun houses. Um, but what is mirrors? Be more specific. You're right. I'll give it to you. What is well lit mirrors? <laughs>
0: what is looking at themselves in the mirror? Yeah, looking yeah. at themselves yeah. in the yeah. mirror. And that's file vendor.
1: This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast, and we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard, Dustin Ballard, <laughs> and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks@gmail.com, at gmail.com and to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website gazeatthenationalparks.com, and that's gays G A Z. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger with Sean Scleo on guitar. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard.
0: We would also like to acknowledge that while recording Recording this episode that we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey.